27, Amy Gerhart was 16 years old, a normal teenager hanging out on the beach when her 19-year-old ex-boyfriend, Joby, beat her in front of her brother and friends, then held her captive. He marched Amy and her brother, Jason, at gunpoint to the Delaware state line and tried to coerce Jason into beating his own sister. When Jason refused, Amy screamed for him to run. With Jason gone, Joby told the girl to choose her death, drowning, choking, or beating. Either she would die or her family would. Later, x-rays and photographs taken at the medical clinic showed Amy suffered contusions to the left eardrum so that she couldn't hear correctly for months after the attack, lacerations and swelling to her cheek and nose, a contusion to the right eye that caused it to hemorrhage, and a bruised rib cage. The next year, in 1988, Amy spotted a local girl named Kimberly, who was 16 at the time, with a black eye. She knew that Kimberly was Joby's new girlfriend. Joby had searched Kimberly's room without her permission and found some birth control that she had been taking in secret. He became enraged because he didn't want her taking birth control and punched her. Then he held her to the ground and screamed as Kimberly thrashed and he dragged her around his bedroom, then tried to have sex with her. When she refused, he became very angry and very forceful and threatened to cut her throat with a razor blade. For his attacks on Amy and Kimberly, Joby would spend two years in prison. But in 1991, less than six months after his release from jail, he met Sharon, who was 17 at the time. He would go on to attack Sharon at her school in public in front of both students and principals. He pushed her up against the wall, and even though she pleaded with him not to hit her, the next thing she knew, she was on the ground screaming. He had also threatened Sharon's parents, saying that he would kill them if she ever left him and leave her alive to suffer. He said that if he went to jail, he would kill her or get someone else to hurt her. Evidently, he had sent people to her house in the past to threaten her. By the way, do you want me to chime in during this? Or? Yeah, oh, go okay. for it. This is like the lead up to, and this is the story. Well, it's going to be the lead up to, but generally, you can ask questions. This is not this is not martial law. <laughs> okay. All right. I have questions, but I don't know. Like, first of all, how did this guy just, like, beat up the first girlfriend, Amy, with the brother, right? And, and then he's... Six months later, he's back on the street? Like... So, this is, like, the crazy thing about this entire story... All these stories are basically taking place leading up to a period in time where women, and especially under uh, underage girls, were just now being taken seriously when they accused people of domestic abuse. So every single time, basically, these like threat, like these threats and these beatings took place in public. This guy. Joseph Pelchinski, who was known as Joby. Ah, there's the Joby. Yeah. It was like, who names their kid Joby? Would basically, like, charm people. So with Amy, the first girl, a group of fishermen, this was taking place at night, but a group of fishermen spotted him basically trying to drown her. And when they approached him, he 
told Amy that if she said anything, he would kill her and the other three fishermen and just said that they were like horse playing in the water. So she didn't say anything. And by the time that she and her brother told her parents, like she's severely beaten. Mm -hmm. But at the time, sentencing was so light for what they were calling like marital spats. I mean, she was 16. He was 19. They didn't want like this whole this boy's entire reputation ruined. And I mean, we see cases like this even now, Mm. almost 30 years later with things like the Brock Turner sentencing. Mm -hmm. You don't want to ruin this boy's whole life because some girl said something mouthy to him or did something stupid. And I'm I'm not saying that this is right. I'm just saying that like, we'll see over time, over and over again, he gets these sentences that are almost like laughable. I mean, he's he's operating in, you know, what is, uh, what I'm assuming, because you mentioned the beach in Maryland and then Delaware, driving to Delaware, the border. I'm assuming this is the Eastern Shore, right? Like this is, you know, your Rehoboth, Bethany, Dewey area, right? So he's actually, the Amy's attack takes place on the beach, uh, I think near Ocean City. But this entire story is mostly going to take place in Baltimore. Ah, okay. Because here I was thinking like, if this guy, you know, he beats up his girlfriend and I think it is Eastern Shore and then he's got this you know he's kind of got this behavior of doing it with other like it's not that big of a community out there but now that you said it's Baltimore okay I, bigger community you know he doesn't maybe have that rep or you know uh, the, the smaller community for word to spread of him you know same high school or something like that that these girls go to it's also important whenever we talk about Baltimore I like to point out he's also white and all of his victims are white so for years and years, there has been almost like an institutional bias for white people in Baltimore and against the black community in Baltimore. So he would go in front of a judge and a judge would say, all right, you beat up your girlfriend. This is really not a big deal in comparison with maybe the gang style violence yeah. and murders. It doesn't feel like it should be that way. Like, I mean, <laughs> it should I know, definitely not like, be that way. Like, I know it shouldn't be that way, but it just seems like, you know, if you're a judge, like, each case is new and different. Like, I guess that's where, like, you know, personal biases come in or just even being maybe too close to, like, the subject matter on a continual basis. Like, you just kind of get warped, distorted morals? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess you, like, start seeing the world in really weird shades of gray. <laughs> yeah, like... So, anyway, um, he... Starts dating this girl, Sharon, who's 19 at the time. He attacks her at her school. He pushes her up against the wall. He asks her not to... She asks him not to hit her, and he basically throws her onto the ground and starts kicking her. Um, He threatens to kill her parents. Her parents... I mean, to be fair to every single one of these girls, their parents are always, like, the fucking heroes of the story. They always press charges. They never back down. But the system kind of fails them in a major way. So Joby is out on bail. He's supposed to, he's ordered to have no contact with Sharon, but phones her on almost a daily basis. She complains to police and he starts threatening to basically murder her. He tells her, I'm going to blow your brains out. Isn't this like a violation of parole or bail? Like, should this guy just be like back in jail, like uh, immediately? You would hope so, but that's not what happened. And also, like, 
two questions. How is he putting up the bail money? Maybe it was low bail, but also like, how's that guy not a flight risk? Like he could go anywhere in the country and continue that behavior. So both of those things are going to come into play later. So Sharon doesn't back down. She's she's a fucking hero. She insists on pressing charges. And that year, Joby is sent to Spring Grove State Hospital for evaluation. Mental evaluation. Mental evaluation. On December 16th, 1991, two days after arriving at Spring Grove facility, he escapes and flees the state with the identification cards of a friend of his who he talked into giving him, like, their ID. He just seems like this guy, all what we're talking about aside, like, he seems like he would be smart and charismatic. And oh, you're just like, what a waste. Definitely. Like, what, you could super be a- smart, super handsome, very charismatic. Like, you could be doing, it. It. he'd probably be like an entrepreneur, like, he'd be like, you know, just destroying it. And, and he's, this is what he's using his talents for. Like- well, the way that he's able to talk people into doing his bidding, all that I can say is like, I wish that this guy had gone into sales because he is so forceful. He's so persuasive. But either way, he escapes from Spring Grove facility in on December 16th, 1991. And he doesn't show up again until 1992 in Gooding, Ohio, where he viciously assaults a 15-year-old girl and threatens to kill her brother. Same M.O. Same M.O., exactly the same behavior. He is eventually apprehended, and they realize, like, oh, this guy isn't this random person who he's claiming to be. He's this guy, Joseph Palchinski, and he's extradited back to Maryland. From there, things are looking pretty grim for him, right? You would assume that he would go straight to jail, well, I mean, the dude escaped from a psychiatric ward, like, yeah, and was, you know, on, ba- on bail or what? Uh, yeah. So he's facing charges of violating federal gun laws because he's stolen firearms to threaten this poor girl, battering and threatening Sharon and escaping from Spring Grove Hospital, as well as the charges against him in Idaho. Basically, any conviction at this point would land him in prison. Unless he is found legally insane. That is just the beginning of this story. These are the victims of Joseph Palchinski. My name is Natalie Levy. And I'm Rebecca Johnson. And this is Detective Society. Rebecca Johnson, tell us about yourself. Hey there, listeners. I am a fellow listener to Detective Society since I think maybe day one. <laughs> uh, I have, I don't, I, I would say thoroughly enjoy, although the subject matter seems like I shouldn't say that, but um, uh, I, do, I do love the, the, you know, the, obviously the hosts, um, well, host and sometimes her significant other, a better other, uh, Mike. Let's see. Well, I've been in D.C. what I just realized it's like 10 years now. Uh, yeah. Which means I'm super old. Because <laughs> I remember when I would be like, yeah, I've been here four years. And I was like, no, that's not very long. And now I'm like, wow, 10 years. Like, I've lived more of my adult life here than anywhere else. So, um, 
Not much else to say about me. Live in a one-bedroom apartment with my fiance and two cats, Archie and Thomas, who you might hear in the background yowling every once in a while or well, eating eating kibble. It'll give the like listeners a break from listening to my two dogs to now have these awesome quiet cats that I'm gonna be tweeting like a million pictures of. Uh, yeah, and um, I'm just super excited to be on the show. Yeah. <laughs> so I also I picked a Baltimore murderer. Um, slash series of crimes because I know that your parents live up in Baltimore. Yeah. I figured you might have like an interesting take on things because also this this particular like horrible piece of garbage targets women. He there's like a lot of a domestic abuse and I feel like that's something that you don't hear a lot about in Baltimore. Like whenever people talk about crime in Baltimore, it's like gun violence but it's usually gang related or drug related so i feel like this was like a really interesting one and we're gonna hear a lot more about kind of the evolution of this guy he happened to be committing his crimes like very publicly very openly so there were always like a lot of witnesses and so there's a lot of kind of documentation surrounding the way that he operated which is also super rare right and this is all happening in like the late 80s, right? So I think you said 87. So it's happening from 1987 until the year 2000. All right, so like 13 years, right? This guy was operating for an, like, un, in an unbearably long period of time. And I'm assuming that's going to tie into where you kind of left off with the, you know, he gets off if he's convicted or he's considered mentally ill or unstable or whatever it is like that's going to definitely play into like the longevity of this guy also the fact that he's like i don't know i don't know a lot about like you know the manson family but he sounds like like a charles manson or like what was that other kind of cult leader out in california um there were like, quite a few. No, the woman like Sharon Tate and like... Yeah, that, uh, so that was Manson. Yeah. There's also... Um, there was David Koresh in Waco. David Koresh. Well, David Koresh was someone else, but there were... No, no, no. David Koresh in Jonestown. Yeah, you're right. In Waco. Um, there was... Uh, there was like this Indian fam... Like this Indian guru who moved to um, Oregon and they committed a bunch of crazy crimes. Um... Yeah, anyway, so there, there's a lot of, like, of this cult violence that happens on the West Coast, but he, this is one of these, like, rare kind of, like, sociopaths yeah. that stay, like, very small time, but inflict, like, this kind of huge network of residual violence. Um But for now, actually, before I forget, we're going to talk about some housekeeping. Housekeeping. So, as always... Oh, sorry. Just knocked my microphone. As always, you can email us. Um, Our email address is detectivesocietypod at gmail.com. You're welcome to like us on Facebook. If you don't want to, that's fine. Just search Detective Society. Um, Rate and review us. Please, please, please rate and review. It actually, for whatever reason, helps a lot on iTunes. I did it. Uh, Yeah, you did. Digibeck is one of our reviewers. It's actually the first podcast I've ever reviewed. Ooh. I listened to a good amount. And, uh, well, it's not just because we're friends. It's because it's an interesting show. Oh, thank you. And it's local. Um, But, yeah, and honestly, don't just rate and review us. If there are any other podcasts that you're into, it actually does help. So I actually wanted to give a shout out to Sir Jimble and Smith D6 for reviewing. You guys are fucking fabulous. Uh, And also feel free to tweet at us at the detective pod. 
Big ups to at bad folklorist at deviant on three and especially to at E underscore 84. I hope I said all of those correctly. You guys have been like super fans tweeting at us, helping us when it comes to research. I definitely put out the feelers. Yeah, I like honestly can't believe that like number one, people are listening, but number two, that like people have responded so positively. It's been really, really nice. Yeah, I wrote a review. That was that was about it. <laughs> I, I, I don't expect anything from any of the listeners. If you want to just keep being yourself and listening, I truly appreciate that as well. Um, I also made an animated GIF for the last. Also, I say GIF. If you say GIF, that's like your own prerogative. But it is tomato, GIF. tomato, whatever. Um, we so know I what made, you're saying. I made an animated GIF for last week's episode. I'm going to try to be making them for every episode. You can check that one out on Twitter. I'll be like pinning them on our page. Um, so let me know what you think. Let me know if you appreciate it. Uh, moving on to the murders. All right. Slash horrible I mean, violence yeah. against women. And, and for the record, I have no idea where this is going. I have, there has been zero communication from Natalie on, you know, she pretty much showed up at my house and we started. I have no idea where this is going. There's no background. Um, I'm, I'm along for the ride with you guys. I would actually suggest that most people who are listening to this podcast be wary because I might just show up at your apartment one day with wine and microphones and say like, all right, sit down. We're going to talk about murder. Uh, well, you know, maybe maybe that could be like a contest you have for like, <laughs> you know, most sharing, you know, tweets. Uh, they get They get to come and meet you. Actually, that would be kind of cool. It's a, I'd, I'd like to meet everyone. We might do like a meetup, like a DC meetup. That would be cool. Um, so like I was saying, and we could do a Baltimore one as well. Uh, most of this takes place in the Baltimore, Maryland area. He was kind of on the lam in Idaho for a little bit, but he was clearly so out of control. So that that last assault happened in Gooding, Idaho. That's how they discovered that he was like living under this assumed identity. And he does move around quite a bit in the Baltimore area, but mostly he's just out of his mind and anchored to his mother, who is a huge enabler. Yeah, I was like wondering where the, the mom's got to, there's got to be something in there with the, the victims he's picking. We're going to talk more about this later because this mother of his, basically every single time that he is accused of some kind of domestic violence, these girls get a call from his mom. The mom picks up the phone and is like, oh, please drop the charges. He's my sweet little baby. Like, no, lady, don't. Don't enable these psychos. Like, just stop. I gotta think though that you know he's he's exhibiting behavior. He's probably learned, and and maybe he learned. I don't know. I'm I'm totally making assumptions here, but from watch, watching his dad or his mom's boyfriends or whatever do that to her, so maybe you know she's just like his victim. Well, actually, his victims, like you said, like they stand up and the families press charges. So maybe they're not at all like, but like maybe she's, you know, just somehow in not like just has that's her way of life like she like she's accepted that and like can't see the truth you know i i definitely think that that plays a part in it i think that maybe the other side of the coin is that she was like so perfectly primed to always defend this kid like this because this behavior escalates over time right it doesn't start with him beating up girlfriends it starts with like little stuff that then kind of grows over time. And if you're making excuses for the little, for the little stuff in the past, 
it becomes easier as the years progress to make excuses for the big stuff later down the road. Was this guy an only child? I believe he was, because in all of the articles that I read, there was no mention of any other kind of siblings, and it seems like his mother plays a huge part in his life, so you would assume that there would be something out there. Um, So where we left off, after horribly assaulting three different underage girls, and this is really his M.O., Joseph Joby Palchinski... Also, this, his last name is spelt very, very confusingly, so I can spell it for you. It's P-A-L-C-Z-Y-N-S-K-I. So if I mispronounce it, please let me know. Yeah, this, uh, you know, there were, uh, I mean, I think dating back to like the midnight, mid-20th century, sorry, uh, that the uh, huge Polish contingency in uh, communities in Baltimore. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, even even now, if you go down to uh, this is talking about in uh, like inner city Baltimore, it Fells Point was a huge Polish area. They have a Polish home house, home, home club, and they do like huge polka dances. It's like a scene at a deer hunter, uh, you know, in that what? big ballroom. Yeah, huge Polish community down there. Um, lots of delis, like I think it's called like Ostrovsky's, where they make like crazy like pastrami sandwiches oh and stuff God. like that. Senator Mikulski, she's from there, from Maryland. She's just retiring. She grew up there. Really? I, honestly, I I feel like D.C. needs more, like, delis, but... Oh, yeah. Um, so, this guy, Joby, as we're going to call him, because for whatever reason, that was the nickname that every article that I read kind of identifies him by. So, he sent back to the psychiatric facility that he escaped from. He's there for a, a month-long evaluation... And what we'll see time and time again is that this guy is terrified to go back to prison. More than anything else in the world, he does not want to go back to prison, which leads me to think that he must have done something or something horrible must have happened to him when he was locked up the first time because he does everything in his power to not go back except for following the law. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the rules are simple. Uh, so how long was he in in? prison before like six months uh he was in prison for six months and he'll go back later for a couple of years but i don't know what happened but he does not want to go back and over and over again he says like i'd rather die than go back to prison and and honestly what what happens next kind of makes this entire ordeal and and all the actions moving forward really difficult to judge because from the outside, you don't know what was going on inside of this guy's head or what his mental state was actually like. He was obviously violent, but was he insane? I don't know. For example, during his evaluation, Palchinski told the federal psychologist that he had illegally purchased the gun at the pawn shop that he used to assault this girl in Idaho to, quote, kill ninjas who were trying to kill him. He went on to try to slit his wrists in the psychiatric facility. Um, He needed to get stitches and needed, like, medical attention and told the psychologist later that a voice told him to do it. But later, Joby would brag to girlfriends and friends that he lied and told the psychologist whatever they wanted to hear to fool the system. So if it was a lie, it totally worked. (laughs) You just... (laughs) 
you just like like inadvertently gave away part of the story that depressed me which was like he tells future girlfriends and i'm like oh like facepalm like oh man oh yeah like so you can look up pictures of this guy online actually the baltimore sun has a really really great slideshow of pictures of him leading up to um when he's finally kind of found out and he was he was very good looking. He made sure to keep himself in really, really good shape. He practiced martial martial arts. Hence he, the ninjas. Yeah. <laughs> he, he took really, really good care of his body. And I think that's what kind of made him so insidious and deceptive to these young girls who didn't really know any different right so like this really good looking young guy tries to court you and 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 you're flattered um so this lie or this true medical mental illness totally works the federal psychologist diagnosed him with schizophrenia paranoid type and concluded that he met the criteria for legal insanity this decision led to him being found not guilty on the federal weapons charges and assault that he was being charged for and 15 months later after spending 15 months in this psychiatric facility he did not go back to prison he is released after court-ordered treatment um, and spending time in like more than one facility that kind of it was this situation where he was in like a lockdown facility, then he was moved to kind of a minimum security sure. mental facility, then a halfway house. Titrating his way out of mental, the mental hospital, which, you know, I'm assuming this is all like state run. This isn't, this is not any sort of private facility. I'm sure that can't be easy either, but. I'm sure it can't be easy, but at the same time, I definitely believe that there are people out there who are charming and perceptive enough to turn what should be maybe a 10 to 15 year sentence into 15 months. Yeah. This guy sounds like a a real, a real charmer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If you're 16 years old. Um, So he is released. Um, According to another psychologist, the 25 year old man's condition was now extremely stable with no evidence of bizarre behavior or verbalizations which might be indicative of delusional thinking at that point at the point at which he had been released if he had been mentally ill he had been off of his medication for more than a year well so wait they they let he they say he has schizophrenia he's gets you know transferred from a, a heavy duty facility to a medium to a light right and they take him off his meds yep I thought, I mean, I don't know a lot about schizophrenia, but I would assume you got to be on those meds like long term. You would definitely assume that, especially if you're dealing with a schizophrenic. But what I think may have happened here is that he was initially diagnosed with schizophrenia in like the first facility he went to. And as he swapped facilities, these diagnoses became like less and less severe. He became more and more charming, understood more and more what people wanted to hear. And eventually led to someone saying, actually, he's perfectly fine. Right. Oh, we, we misdiagnosed schizophrenia for severe depression or something like that. I wonder if he's smart enough. Like, I don't know a lot about schizophrenia, but I, the one thing I'm pretty sure I do know is that it tends to be more prevalent in males. Mm-hmm. And the onset is late teens, early 20s. Yep. 
So I think he was in that like perfect range of like, okay, maybe he's schizophrenic. In reality, I think he was just a fucking sociopath. But I think he was just at any given point, whatever worked to make people sympathetic towards him, he displayed. So he leaves the federal facility, which also means that he's free to victimize other girls. And in 1995, Michaela Osborne, who was 17 at the time, meets him. She, again, like, I feel horrible saying this, but these girls are so impressionable. Where is he meeting these girls? He's just, like, lurking outside of high schools? Yeah, that's the craziest thing, is that he's just hanging out at grocery stores and near high schools and basically walking up to girls and charming them. So she believes that he's in love The situation escalates to the point where he's choking her and slamming her head against shower tiles on Christmas. Okay. Go on. I know more is coming, so I'm I'm, I'm just waiting. I'm bracing. Well, brace yourself for something great, because he messed with the wrong girl. Because her father, Gary, after this, like, Christmas Day assault, discovers these bruises, and when he confronts his daughter, Michaela, about it finds out that this guy, Joby, is not 20 like he had originally told her father. He's 27. Mm. Gary is having none of it. I like Gary. He calls the police. He, I think that this is the one where um, Gary's ex-wife had been they, they had divorced and then she's Michaela's mother. So they still have a relationship and she was beat to death by an abusive boyfriend. Mm. So Gary is on like high alert. He is not going to let this happen. But while Joby is in jail, he uses, he basically manipulates friends, other underage girls that he's been talking to, his mother into a campaign of intimidation against Michaela and Gary. So Joby's friends and girlfriends vandalize their cars, destroy property. They file. He talks these girls into filing false criminal charges against Gary into like saying that like he assaulted them. He called them and abused them. I was by the way, what could what could he possibly threaten Gary and Michaela like with to make them change? And then you answered my question like, yeah, okay, All right. So. Over that summer, while Joby is in jail, Gary is arrested four times, four different times. Over one summer? Over one summer on false charges that are eventually found out by the police, which is great. But Gary holds his ground and he does not drop the charges. Eventually, Palchinsky, seeing that Gary is like not messing around, decides to cop to a plea deal for his assault on Michaela. But in like... Something that makes me totally, absolutely sick is sentenced to probation. So why, like litigators, uh, public defenders, this guy has like a record, a track record, in-court track record. He's gone to, you know, whatever, like three people before, maybe four. He's been in a mental facility. He does this again, and you're giving him a plea deal? Like... So again, it's it's a situation where this is an assault that took place months earlier. He only assaulted her. He didn't murder anyone. There was no sexual element to his attack. So these people are basically like, listen, I've got an entire docket of crimes that I need to be prosecuting. Like, get this out of my right. 
out of my hands. Um, but it also, this particular incident gives you just like a little bit of an idea of the power that he had over these younger impressionable, gir- uh, impressionable girls and a lot of friends of him of his, which by all accounts were were much younger men who were like very easily kind of manipulated. He used fear, violence, and manipulation to get people to do exactly what he wanted. And he knew what was like the most insidious part is that he, as a 27-year-old, totally understood how to talk to these kids to get them to do exactly what he wanted them to do. Master manipulator, uh, like puppeteer. Exactly. And when, when you're talking about like a bunch of high schoolers who you're manipulating into doing what you want, they're all underage. They're not going to get charged for this kind of stuff. They're not going to see jail time. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's almost like he's orchestrating crimes that don't have any repercussions for anyone except for the victims. Yeah. Yeah. I just wonder if he's also doing like them other favors, maybe in the back, like buying them oh, booze definitely. and cigarettes. He and definitely you know, doing, was. Doing other things like. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So in 1996, Stacy Collado, who is again 17 years old. What? He's 28 at the time now. He's 28 now. Um, he meets her at a gas station while she's like gassing up her car. Yeah. Um, he tells her that again he's twenty, so so he's lying. So he doesn't just lie to the parents like Gary. He's lying to them too. No, uh, when when he picks up these girls, he's lying. He's straight up just lying to them. And is he like honest with them? Like later, like oh, I might have fudged it. I'm so later on, yes. But something that I love, and again, like the parents are the heroes in in this case. His parent, her Stacy's parents, meet him. And say, no way is this guy 20 years old with all these crow feet. Like, they're so, (laughs) they're so sassy. I just, like, I love it. So, like, any normal fucking parents, they forbid her to see him or even talk to him. Because we've never heard of, you know, like, Romeo and Juliet. You can't, you can't. Talk to this guy, and then they're, like, sneaking off and buying poison from the, you know, the apothecary. So, obviously, this girl thinks she's in love and sneaks out, goes behind her parents' back, and does what any other 17-year-old would do. But once she starts lying to her parents is when this guy, Joby, realizes, like, oh, now I can escalate my behavior because she's already started lying to her parents. Mm. She's not going to go to them for help. Right, right, because then I got to admit I lied, right? I got to admit that, yeah, I can see that. Like, I'm not, I'm going to say, you're kind of going like white lies here, but if you reveal the whole truth, like, you know, you're, you're looking at some, you're looking at some home jail time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm not going to out myself as a liar to my parents because you are acting a little bit weird. But once, once he's gotten her to start lying to her parents, he starts escalating. He starts following her around, controlling her behavior, basically like intimidating her into doing exactly what he wants. And and really, this is something that we'll see over and over with him, but also with other abusers. Like they're always just kind of pushing the envelope to see how far they can get you to go. Next comes physical violence. In one episode, he grabs Stacy by the neck, shoves her against the wall and basically holds her over a balcony and threatens to let her fall. And this is seen by other people, or is this, like, her saying this happened? This this is her testimony later, but what's really upsetting is that even she admits 
I thought I had done something wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, that sounds like typical sort of abused, you know, battered women syndrome. You know, like, it's yeah. my fault. I, I shouldn't have, I don't know, cooked the chicken this way or something like that. It sucks because, like, instead of thinking, like, this person's psychotic and I need to get away from them, she thinks, like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have worn that. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have acted this way. It was my fault. But... Again, and the parents being badasses. The Colados are like not just snassy. Snassy. They're snassy. <laughs> not just sassy, but they're also sneaky. And her mother had started giving her like surreptitiously had started giving her books on abused women. Mm. Um, she had given her this book called The Power of Fear that kind of goes through like the entire cycle of abuse and how insidious it can be. Um, And then at the same time, as they were giving her these books, they were following her around, not telling her. They filed a police report and started the paperwork to prevent Joby from contacting her because she was still underage. So they still could kind of like wield a little bit of power over her. She's 17, right? You're going to be 18 to be sort of free. Yeah, but at the end of the day... None of this would really matter because Joby, get this. Remember Gary? Oh, yeah. Remember Gary? Please bring back Gary. Oh, yes. He brings Joby up on charges because he orchestrated all of these fake police reports. And so later that year, Joby is back in prison. Surprise. Because Gary has proof of him orchestrating all these attacks on him and Michaela. Oh, man. Gary, if you're listening. Go, Gary. Go, Gary. (laughs) Yeah, you are like my hero. I just imagine Gary being like, I don't know why. Like I envision him like as like some like awesome like military dad. But he's like, like not your like strict overbearing military dad, but just like badass dad who like. Like Major Dad. Did you ever watch that show? (laughs) Major Dad? Major Dad? With Craig, not Craig T. Nelson. Anyway, he was like the general. Who was the, he was a major. He wasn't a, he wasn't a general. He was a major. And he had like three young girl daughters. No, I never oh, saw this. Man. I can't remember the name of the actor. If I showed you a picture, you'd be like, oh, that guy. I can't remember. My parents were immigrants. So like I never watched anything that people normally watch. Like the first time I watched any of the Star Wars movies was like a year ago. Oh, I only watched. I didn't get to watch Major Dad primetime because we had like very limited television growing up as children but like when I was sick it was on like USA reruns and oh, oh that was, I would just the I would just like I would just crush on Major Dad like he was Ooh. you know he was he was hard but he also had like a heart of gold he was hard but he was fair yeah yeah <laughs> um so all of this goes down in 1996 right Joby spends a solid two years in prison place he doesn't want to be in a place he does not want to be and this is prison in like dc maryland virginia area yeah i think so i think that there's a prison in hyattsville there's a bunch of prisons around like i think there's one in like jessup and i know there's a bunch in virginia but yeah yeah i'm sure so anyway he's, he's sent to uh to a state prison not federal prison um but just two years later back on the streets and this is 1998 he meets tracy whitehead which is she's the last of his girlfriends but she's also the oldest so she's 20 when they meet she also but she looks like much younger i could also think he's had i mean these are the girlfriends we know about right like i i just 
I don't see this guy being a, you know, he's got to have other other things on the side. He does Meh. not respect yeah. the fidelity of a relationship. I can tell you that right now. But he expects them to respect the fidelity oh of the relationship. Oh my God. So yeah. wait till you hear about his relationship with Tracy, because this is like a real doozy. Tracy's 20 years old. This is kind of like, their relationship is just the setup for the events that would turn a piece of like what is already human garbage into a like legitimate murderer. And and like, it's also hugely fascinating. So let, let's talk about Tracy Whitehead for a minute. She's kind of the woman in the middle of this murder spree. Eventually their relationship would lead to the death of four different people. Tracy's got problems. She's warm and she's kind and for the most part felt like Joby really loved her and believed in her, but she also is very, very troubled. And like I saw, so I, I looked up a picture of her online and she is so adorable. Like when they meet, I, I saw a picture of her in 1998 and when they meet, she looks like very young. She's 20 years old, but she looks like she could be 15. I'm imagining like an Olympic gymnast somehow. I don't know why. I, I think that that works, but she also, um, so she had kind of a, a really terrible drug problem. And so she still, her face is really swollen. So she still has kind of like that full cheeked kind of look of a girl in high school. What kind of drug problem? She was addicted to heroin. And what makes it like kind of upsetting is like she's so cute. She's very bubbly. And like people describe her as like bubbly but insecure. So she's like very approachable. She has like dark, curly hair and, and honestly looks like the quintessential Baltimore girl. Like if I saw her on the street and she wasn't wearing an Orioles t shirt, I would be very surprised. <laughs> So she's really, really cute, but she she got pregnant when she was 15. She drops out of school to take care of her son. And the story goes, time and time again, she slips into drugs. She leaves her son living with his grandmother and basically spends five years on and off the wagon trying to get clean so that she can raise her baby. Not, not a... You know, uncommon story, unfortunately. No, and, and it like... It couldn't have happened to someone like less likely. She's got a family support system. Mm, I was gonna ask about that. Yeah, the father of her child has a support system. It It's just kind of a situation where you would have never expected this girl who was like so lovely and wonderful to end up in these kind of situations. So when Joby comes into her life, she's still addicted to heroin. They meet at a pharmacy where she's trying to return her prescription so that she can get money for drugs. And she like noticed him watching her and became like very, very self-conscious and just left. And he runs outside and says like, I think you're so beautiful. I love your number. And she gives it to him and he basically starts calling every day. And so I mentioned earlier that Joby was handsome, but he was handsome, tan, fit, good looking. He drove a really nice sports car. How does that guy drive a nice sports car? Okay, because his mother, this is something that like women do not not women, but like these young girls did not understand. His mother paid for everything. Yeah, it doesn't sound like this guy's holding down a nine to five or like. He is certainly not. He has no job to speak of. Is so, he living at home with his mom? 
No, I believe he's living with roommates, but more than likely his mother's paying the rent. Um, so he's got a sports car. He has a jet ski. Oh, actually, no, no, no. I was wrong. Earlier when he was dating Michaela, he didn't have a job. But now he's he's apprenticing with an electrician so that he can kind of get himself a better job. He's also he also I said that he works really hard to take care of his body. He also stays very clean cut looking. He doesn't smoke cigarettes. He tries not to drink. He does really romantic things. He takes her on picnics and sings her ballads. Um, He takes her out on like real dates, not just like out to drug parties. He drives her to her Narcotics Anonymous meetings. He drives her wherever she needs to go so that like she can keep a job. She can get a paycheck going. She can pay for things for her son. And she has never been with anyone who kind of supports, supports her. her. Well, because she's, you know, she got pregnant at 15 with a fi- probably a 15-year-old, like, you know. Yeah. Like, so, but so he's on, he's into her being sober, sounds like. You know, he's taking her to NA meetings. Like, he's, he's, he's not into the drug scene. So that's what it sounds like, right? Yeah. <sighs> so... He seems like he's working with her to get her life back on track. She knows that he has a criminal record, but because she has her own kind of checkered past, she feels like she can't hold it against him. She can't judge him. I can't judge, yeah. They move in together. He takes her out to dinner with her son. She gets clean. She starts gaining weight. Um... She's almost like this weird, like, personal project for him. But there's... A backlash to that, right? So as long as she is dysfunctional and needs him, he is there and he's supportive and he wants to keep her dependent. But the flip side of the coin is that she starts getting better and she starts getting clean and she needs him less and less. Ah, he probably doesn't like that. Not at all. So... As she gets healthier and healthier, these kind of like violent outbursts start happening more and more. She doesn't need him as much, so he becomes more and more resentful. Right. I helped you get clean, and this is how you repay me. Yeah, except that like when he gets mad, it's over things like... A stranger saying hello to her in public, not anything typical sort of abusive woman like you see in the movies. It's the only way I can put it because I've been fortunate enough not not to experience that myself or to have I don't think any friends. I hope any friends have done that, but just that kind of I hope not. And if you need help, please reach out to anyone in your reach out to me. I don't know you out there. But I'll I'll do my best to help you. I just, these stories like break my heart. Yeah, it's, yeah. So he, the the abusive and violent outbursts start happening more and more. He is spitting at her, hitting her. At one point he knocks her unconscious. And this is, he had like a very insidious MO because it wasn't, it wasn't just that he was attacking the girls themselves. He would drive himself into their lives so he would introduce them to his family they would introduce him to their families 
he would get to know them so that later on when he decided he was going to threaten these girls, he would say things like, "He, I'm going to kill your whole family and I'm going right. to leave you he's alone embedded, alive right? yeah, to he's, suffer. He's totally embedded in your life. So she's obviously trying to get clean. Early on, a counselor tells her, like, this relationship does not sound healthy. You need to get out. And eventually... Tracy does leave. She tries to leave five, six times, but he always finds her and promises he's going to change. And this is something that you see over and over again is like, I'm going to change. I promise it'll be different. And then it's never different, guys. You know, uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's like 90, 95 percent true. I think if there are like you feel like I I just want to hold out hope for humanity and people that if you get the right professional help that there is hope to change your behavior. Like we all make, I don't know. Maybe I'm just just, I'm just, it sounds like now that I'm thinking about it, I'm justifying horrible behavior. Uh, but I just like want to hope that like, you know, that people can, you know, get better. I mean, you, you always hope, but I just, I think in, in certain cases and especially this one, like it's, it's just well, not he's so far happen. down the line right yeah. now. Like, yeah. But so, but what, what is kind of crazy and what I kind of love about this story is that at every turn, he's kind of thrown for curveballs. Like, like yes, he is a horrible person, but at every junction in his story, there's kind of like a beautiful ray of light. And Tracy is one of them. She, number one, is old enough so that she could kind of count himself one of, like, she could kind of count herself one of his peers. He's 10 years older than her, but she's a grown-up by the time that he meets her. And so she's experienced enough not to take abuse without a fight. She could dish it as much as she could take it. And anytime he told her that she was ugly, she would come right back with a defensive and say like, well, you're old. Stop lying about your age. Anytime that he talked about cheating on her with other women, she would, there are stories of her literally going out to bars and calling him so that he could hear her flirting with other men. Like she is not taking all of his garbage without throwing some back. And to be fair, none of this is good. None of this is healthy, but at this point, he's dealing with a different kind of victim yeah. that he's never dealt with before. Mm-hmm. So she's older, but she's also a little bit wiser. Well, she's, you know, she's, she's got a kid. She's, she's, it sounds like she's really on the mend and got a good, good, good momentum going with her, with her drug addiction. Like she's, I would assume, you know, she's going to NA, like she's probably getting some good therapy and, you know, like having a lot of good self-reflection and understanding who she is and, and what she will and won't take. Not to say that she's in the healthiest relationship because clearly she's not, but, you know, compared to the 16-year-olds he was dating, like, yeah, well, sure. Oh, definitely, definitely. But unfortunately for Joby and also basically the entire city of Baltimore, Tracy, who is now clean, has made normal friends, can afford to live on her own, and is not down to deal with any of his garbage anymore. And just as he had feared, she had gotten clean and built up enough confidence that now she'd basically outgrown their abusive relationship. Oh, good for her. Yeah, right? Like, good for you, Tracy. Like, if you're listening, you you got your shit together, girl. Um, anyway, so she decides to leave for good and he 
loses his shit. He threatens her with a gun, forces her into his car, and in a move that I think kind of illustrates just how enabling his mother is, says he's going to drive her over to his mother's house to make her explain to his mother why she's leaving. (laughs) I mean, okay. Like... And so they actually go to the mom's house? So they're on their way to the mom's house. They get there. She manages to, like, in a very quick moment of thinking, grab a phone, call the call her friend who asks her, are you okay? And she says no. And then the friend has the wherewithal to say, like, do you want me to call the police? And she says yes. So she hasn't said anything. So clearly she, her, her friends know, and she's probably talked with him that this guy's you know, Fucking bad, bad news. news. I'm sure they knew that long before she did. But you, know. you, you would think so. So the police show up at this dude's mom's house with like no, like they they just have no idea that they're on their way. They show up at the house. Joby is arrested for kidnapping, yeah. which is huge. But like almost every other time that he's arrested, his mother immediately pays his bail, and he goes off looking for Tracy. what? What? To me, his mom is like some sort of like neurosurgeon earning like, you know, half a mil. Like, no. Like, how is this? No, by all accounts, she's she's just a housewife. And there's no like account of his father being around. So I have no idea what she does. Uh, yeah. I mean, that just either leads me to believe that his father is either like super rich and paying some, you know, super awesome child support or something something shady with the mom and the mom maybe the mom's family like child support for a 30 year old uh, yeah i guess that's a good point like or there's just something weird there like i don't know if it's like you know gaming the you know pension system or you know i don't know what's going on mafia related but she pays for everything she totally enables him every single time that one of these girls has brought him up on charges his mother whose name is pat calls them and begs them not to she begs tracy to drop the charges tracy says hell no you and your son are nuts like i'm not dealing with this and by now it's the year 2000 like there are resources for women who are in these abusive relationships. There's a little bit more of an understanding around. This is not okay. Like this yeah. is not average. You know, this is not the way that you should be treated, relationship no matter behavior. who you yeah. are. So she pays his bail on March seventh, two thousand. Joby decides he's going to get Tracy back no matter what. He basically follows her from her work, where he knows that she's going to be all day to the home of George and Gloria Schenk. Schenk? I think their last name is Schenk. How are you spelling that? But it's it's S-H-E-N-C-K. So it kind of... That sounds right. That's- yeah, Schenk. So he follows her to the home of George and Gloria Schenk, which is basically where Tracy's been staying this whole time because she doesn't want anyone to know where she is. Because of Joby? Yeah, because of Joby. And, and like, oh, the saddest part is that they're just this nice older couple oh, who yeah. are really just trying to help her. Gloria had been in an abusive relationship in the past, and their only MO was to help this girl get back on her feet so that she could get her son back. How did she know these guys? Uh, she worked with Gloria. Okay. So she comes to their house. They're, oh, this is so fucking sad. <sighs> She 
George and Gloria and George and Gloria's two children are watching Walker, Texas Ranger on the couch in the living room when Joby sneaks into the house through a sliding glass door. This is why you don't have sliding glass doors. How does he even know where she is? Because he's followed her from work. Okay, 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 okay. He walks in and immediately shoots George and Gloria point blank in front of Tracy and their children. He drags Tracy outside by her hair. She is not wearing any shoes. She has nothing on her, no phone, no nothing. He drags her by her hair. When her screams, because she's being dragged on the floor, attract a neighbor whose name was David Myers. This is a story of wonderful human beings that lead you to believe that there is good in the world who are just not, they're just not paid back in kind. So... This guy, he's a neighbor, David Myers, tries to intervene, like comes up to Joby and is like, what are you doing? Stop it. He just, he doesn't listen. He just shoots him, boom, point blank, and shoves Tracy into his van. Not his van, his mother's van, and drives off. What happened to, what happened to his sports car? Uh, I think like I meant that as this is a rhetorical question. I just but no, 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 no. Yeah. This is super interesting. So every time that he kind of goes to jail, he gives his car to some other new underage girl, who just kind of drives it around for a while until he's out again. Um, and I think that that's what happened again. So he's got his mother's van, and he shot three different people. All three people die. He's killed three people. He's got Tracy in the back of the van, and. I'm sorry. This mother's such an enabler. What happens next is really, really awful. Tracy is like begging for her life. She's just watched him shoot three different people dead. He knows her son. So she's basically like, please let me just talk to my son. Let me tell him that I love him. Even if you're going to kill me, like, let me just live long enough so that I can talk to my little boy. And He basically starts an entire night where he's just describing all the different ways that he's going to torture her and force her to live the worst possible life. He tells her that he's going to shoot off her arms and legs because at this point he has a stolen automatic rifle. He's going to shoot off her arms and legs and let her live in a wheelchair. He's going to pull out her teeth one by one. He's going to call her son so that he can hear it all happening over the phone. Her son's like... Five or six. Five years old, yeah. So after basically taunting her all night and like threatening to torture her, he drives her out into the woods where he knows that there's an empty camper and again like drags her into this camper, pulls her pants off, and rapes her. She is obviously exhausted, like tired. She passes out. um, And in the morning... In the morning, this sick fuck tells her to get up because she has to pray to ask God to forgive her for everything that she's done to him. Like, what? What? How insane are you that, like, you're going to talk this way to your victim? Anyway, um, after that, after he's done making her pray to Jesus on her hands and knees, he... He makes her go out to the woods under this like tree that he picked and pulls out a ring. Oh, please don't tell me what's going to happen. Like this whole, after everything that's just happened, he's about to have the worst wedding in the entire world. 
and makes her put on this ring. He has this like gold chain that he wears around his neck with this tiny, tiny little baby ring that then he makes her wear because he tells her that when they have their first child together, they're going to give their baby this little ring that he wears around his neck. And then he rapes her again. Now, I didn't believe when we talked earlier about him in the psychiatric ward about having like schizophrenia like that just seemed like a cover-up that seemed like him being an opportunist like a total con artist like well i'm about the right age and like this, this would be a good way to, for me to get out but what you just described that that sounds insane like that that sounds- that sounds totally insane like that i don't i'm not saying it's schizophrenia but that delusional thinking like that that sounds that's crazy that's crazy that's totally crazy right yeah like i just and and i agree with you i think when we first started i tried to also allude to the fact that like this this story gets very hairy there at any given point i don't know what to believe is he mentally ill is he not was he insane did he game the system because This entire interaction sounds... And this is all based off of Tracy's testimony. This has nothing to do with what he told the police. So, by all accounts, like, this happened. And this is nuts. And then what what happens now actually kind of leads me to believe even, even more that he was definitely not all there because... So, she's trapped in the woods with this guy who she's lived with they've lived together for like a year and a half she well, thought she knew together. him yeah she thought she knew him he has raped her threatened to to torture her had these crazy mood swings killed people he killed three people in front of her and they're trapped in the woods together keep in mind he didn't plan this because they have no food they have no amenities they're she basically describes a situation where she's stuck with this man for 48 hours and they're out in the middle of the woods in like a broke down shack drinking out of like a hose and there's there's no other amenities. Where is this? Is it like Maryland? So this is just outside of Baltimore. In like some state park or something? Yeah. yeah. But, um, but basically, I mean, they're, they're driving distance. They're not like, you know. Yeah, we're, we're talking like less than 50 miles oh, okay all right all right but she still can't get away she's barefoot right, she doesn't she's have not gonna like her. run to the nearest town or anything like that like she's she has no idea where she is anyway but it, just like logistically they could have gone and like gotten food it wasn't like they're in alaska somewhere so night starts to set in this like that day she's not as exhausted as she'd been the day before and she basically sweets talk him and she she's like Oh, Joby, we should go get something to eat. Like, let's go get dinner together. And she convinces him to basically drive back into the city and to get them a motel room, basically, like, for their wedding night. Ah, okay. Instead of being out in the woods, which is like, God damn, Tracy, you trooper, you beautiful genius. Like, you know how to work this guy. So they order... This is like the craziest tidbit. They order $40 worth of McDonald's. Okay. I mean, I, I know that's possible. I, it's I, possible. Actually, like, I just don't know. I like, haven't been there in so long to imagine like what I would do with $40 <laughs> of McDonald's, but so I'd probably just buy like, I just love the, uh, anyway, I just like chicken nuggets. That's what I'm just, I'm just going to leave it at that. Although a Big Mac is good. I was going to say, so in college, we used to have this sandwich called the McBitchin where you would get two 
chicken sandwiches and make a Big Mac out of them. This is disgusting, but we were in college, so we had, like, crazy metabolisms. Um, Wait, so you would, like, take two chicken sandwiches, take, take, like, one chicken sandwich and take the bottom of the other with the chicken and make a Big Mac out of them? That's ingenious. A McBitchin. It was delicious. But, like, don't eat it because you'll die. I remember being in college, and I don't think they have it anymore. The, like, secret, like, gold star of, like, when so I played soccer in college, and we would go, we would stop at these, like, ridiculous rest stops along, like, upstate New York, like, 87, and I can't remember what, it, what goes out west towards, like, Buffalo. But they had fajitas on the menu, like, weird, that you could, you could order, like, a fajita. It was, it was like super hidden. It was so delicious. But I think they got rid of that. But uh, I, I'm not going to lie. That sounds gross. Oh, it was delicious. Okay. I, I, like, it, like, I mean, I, I, it was like hidden on the menu and we would get those. The, these are the side tangents that we get on on Detective Society that people talk about all the time and that I'm like, no, these are totally relevant. No, but you know what was also, sorry, side note, chicken selects were the best oh thing that McDonald's God, ever came up with. Selects. Chicken selects. Do those still exist? They definitely don't. They definitely don't. But I remember chicken selects because my dad, who has always been like a health nut his whole life, that was the only thing that he would eat from fast foods and like kind of trick himself into thinking that it was okay. You were like, oh, it's Atkins, but it's like, <laughs> or like carb, low carb. And it was not because it was just like covered in like fat and like carb. It was just disgusting. If you're going to eat something that's terrible for you, like just admit it. It's bad for you. And anyway, so they check into this motel and they they get to the motel, they check in. The front person, like the front desk person doesn't recognize him. But when they get into their room, they turn on the TV and he is everywhere. He is all over the news. The manhunt is on. He shot down three people in broad daylight. Right, right. You don't you don't shoot someone in the middle of the street and then no one knows who you are. So he's at the the shacks in daylight it's not at night there and, and he he kills uh D- david meyer so he kills david meyer and george and gloria like during the day like uh, tracy's just gotten off work so like but he's driven like 50 miles into the woods right okay so they spend the night there they wake up they spend this hellish fucking wedding day in the woods and then at night when they've gotten hungry enough, they come back into the city. They check into this motel. He's all over the news. Like, what did you think was going to happen when you shot three people with an automatic rifle? Um, And he freaks out. He decides they need to get out of the city. But beautiful genius that Tracy is, he left his guns in the car as they were checking into the room. And she, as they're walking out of their room, sees a police cruiser driving by the motel and she just runs. She just goes for it. I mean, I I get that she saw him leave the guns that she had seen in the car, but she had no idea that he wouldn't have something else. Right. Oh, definitely. But honestly, or that she would even flag down the car like you're running after a police car. Like what if it just like whizzes by you or doesn't see you and you're left with this dude? Honestly, at that point, I wouldn't care. Like, this dude has raped you and made him his, like, weird, insane wife. You're stuck in a motel room. Like, things cannot get better for you at that point. I guess. I mean... Oh, except that, actually, we're going to hear later about some... Honestly, the human beings in this story are the thing that make it so great. 
Like it, it just it gets it gets crazier and crazier. But at this point, uh, actually, at this point, he's gonna murder one more person. And I know because you said four, and I'm like, there's three, and I'm like, spoiler alert, he's gonna murder one more person. So Tracy is screaming. She's running. He's screaming after her, but realizes that she's running towards a cop car and slips away. Like in oh, the confusion right. of the like insane person somehow manages to be like, oh, there's a cop car. I'm going to run away. Like, yeah, exactly. So this is where the FBI gets involved and the manhunt is in full swing all across Baltimore. Now that they have Tracy, they have some clues as to like where he could be heading and they realize like, well, they don't think that he's heading back into the woods because it's he, he, he doesn't have the supplies. He's kind of he's not prepared to like move into the woods full time and he's not in a part of town where he has access to anything. So wait, is the FBI involved because this is like now like a like a multi-state thing? Like is that is that or because like I know the Idaho stuff and like because I think the FBI only gets involved if it's like a national thing. Well, so I think not only was it a multi-state thing because he was so close to like a multi-state border, but I think the proximity to D.C. and the fact that he committed all these crimes in like broad daylight kind of made them move quicker. Um, and, And we'll see a little bit later, like why that was such a great move on their part. Um, so they start with Tracy and they basically put her in seclusion. They're like, we need to talk to you right now. The same day that he escapes and is running all over town that night, Palchinsky kills his fourth victim, her name. And this for me is like the worst part. He kills a woman named Jennifer McDonald. She's 36. She's the mother of a two-year-old and she's pregnant. And what makes it worse is that he didn't even mean to kill her. He was attempting to carjack a different car. And as he tried to shoot the the driver of that car, the bullet ricocheted off of the car and shot Jennifer. And she's fatally wounded. She passes away. And for me, it's like the worst kind of collateral damage. Like that didn't need to happen. What, what were you doing, man? Like, I, I, I don't know. So... Well, I, I mean, I think that just speaks to the potential violence and and, and co- collateral damage of firearms, you know? Like, yeah. you know, you might think that, and I'm saying this in the, the best sense, like that you're, you know, doing good with a firearm, you know, but, you know, reality is, is there are physics is physics, you know, there, there, things can happen, you know? And there are weapons that like you fundamentally can't control. Oh, sure. Yeah. And like an automatic this rifle. Maybe an automatic, that yeah. One. Yeah, exactly. This is not uh, some, some pistol or some, you know, rifle. Like this is a, yeah, that's a powerful weapon. So for nine days, they cannot find him. Nine days? Nine days. And this is all in DMV area. This is all in Baltimore. Oh. Like, they're they're looking in the DMV. So, in case you're listening and you're not from the area, DMV stands for D.C., Maryland, Virginia. So, they're looking all over the area. And I bet they're probably actually looking in Delaware, oh, too. I'm sure they're looking in, 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 in uh, Pennsylvania and Jersey. Yeah. And, I mean, if you're talking nine days, think about how far a car can drive in nine days. I mean, I mean. You could drive across the country. Well, no, maybe not that far, but... So they can't find him, but in the meantime, all of these girls that we've just talked about, 
the police are like, nope, you're all going on lockdown because they're worried that he's going to do exactly what he did to Tracy and turn back and say, like, nope, I'm going to get all of these girls. Yeah, I mean, they put, I, Tracy, I put their families in lockdown. Like, yeah, oh, everybody. Oh, so this is going to come back in no, a minute. No, no, no. So they put the girls on 24-hour lockdown. They put Tracy on 24-hour Please tell me this isn't coming back to Amy and the brother. I really hope this isn't coming no, full circle. No, 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 no. Okay. Amy and the brother are fine. Because the brother and the a- Amy really, I was like... It's so upsetting, I right? Know. Like, I know, yeah. And I, there's something about, like, a brother, like, refusing to hurt his sister I, that makes me, like, want to cry. I know. I don't know. It made me, it made me think about uh, bro, my Brogan and my fiancé and his sisters. I was like... Yeah, it made me think about my brother and, and like, me and, like, God, I, like, I hope that that's the way everyone reacts is, like, and something that we don't know about Jason, who started off, sorry that this is, like, a tangent back, is that, so this guy, Joby, is, like, stacked. He does martial arts. He's very, very strong. And this guy, Jason, who is, like, her her little brother is, like, very, very scrawny. Well, she was 16. I'm assuming he's a younger, maybe yeah. just shortly older brother. He's, like, 17, 18. Yeah. And maybe, or 13? Yeah. Like, there's no way. There's no way. Okay, so they can't find him for nine days. They put Tracy on lockdown. They have her, actually, on 24-hour guard at a Holiday Inn in Baltimore. Um, and as you can imagine, she's hysterical the entire time. She has just gone through a huge amount of trauma herself, but she's also watched a couple who tried to help her, a man who tried to help her, be gunned down in front of her. So she is, like, not really of a lot of help to the police. But... Obviously, the FBI, the police are trying to do their best. On March 17th, Joby, armed and dangerous as hell, breaks into Tracy's mother's home. So Tracy's mother, Lynn, lives with her boyfriend, Andy, and his son, Bradley. And guys, hold on to your hats because it's tough. He breaks into their home March 17th, which is Bradley's birthday. He's turning 12, so the whole family is home. So this is like, I would assume it's not morning, it's like 10. No, it's like the middle of the day, and like, they're they're just hanging out as a family, and this little 12-year-old is there with like his parents, and he's happy, and this man with a fucking gun comes into their house, and immediately... Starts holding them hostage, calls the police and says, give me Tracy. I'll give you the hostages. If you don't have her here in 25 minutes, I'm going to kill them. Wait, so, so okay. Granted, like, I, I can't, I can't, um, I mean, I, if, if I were the cops, I'd be like, we got to break. Well, because his MO has been, I'm going to threaten my girl, girlfriends, in quotation marks, say, like, if you don't do this, you know, let me choke you, or if you tell anybody that I hit you or, you know, gave you a black eye, I'm going to kill your family. To, to me, that should be like, all right, I'm going to bring everybody else in this circle in, but also their families. But even if you didn't bring the families in, if I... Well, I guess this is maybe assuming... I would assume her mom knew that this was happening. But, like, I would be on, like, stealth alert. Like, because this dude is a fucking lunatic. Sorry, you're gonna have to bleep that out. Well, no, no, no. Okay, number one. (laughs) Sorry. We don't don't bleep anything on Detective Society. I do as little editing work as possible. Um, But I think that I, I should bring up again, how could... 
Lynn have known. Her daughter was abducted 10 days ago, right? But her daughter also has a history of drug addiction. Yeah, but it's been on the news that she's been abducted. This isn't like, you know, uh, like you made it up in like some heroin, well, opioid. so we don't know that it's been on the news that she's been abducted. As but far, he's on the news. As far as I could tell, he is on the news. It is news that he has murdered people and that he has taken a hostage. But if you think about it, so she sent her son to live with his paternal grandmother, not with her mother. And so as far as I could tell, there's no way for Lynn really to know that her daughter is unsafe. She was probably allowed to call her mother. There's no way for Lynn to know that she should be on alert because the police are not there. Like, I think I, I just think that's that's a that's a huge miss by the by the by by the police. Oh, like this I, guy, this guy has a you know whether you go back to Amy with the brother or you go back to Michaela with like whatever. Like he his mo is he he's not only threatening the the women he's in a relationship with. He threatens their families. And whether or not he... Well, I mean, he clearly, with Amy... That, that was his original thing. Like, he, he abducted both her and her brother, right? Like, he clearly has his... He, he has the potential to hurt other family members. And, um, and, and even with... Um, uh, his latest, like he said, like I'm gonna, you know, record pulling your teeth out and like play it for your son on the phone. Like he, he's clearly like his his web extends beyond just them. And so to me, that's a miss. That's that's a miss. Like for the police. Oh, it's it's a huge miss. And I think that this was like a huge like learning point for the police. Like this is something. I mean, this was historical. Like I I wasn't old enough to have known. And I didn't live in the area, but it was everywhere like it made national news like people were going nuts especially in the baltimore area because you didn't know where he was you didn't know what he was capable of and you didn't know like what to do in response so he takes this family hostage they're screaming they can hear like their neighbors can hear the shooting that he did to threaten them and they start calling the police and basically the police don't know what to do. They've never been in this situation really before. And so they shut down the entire block. And so there are stories of families who had gone out to like buy groceries and come back and their entire block is on lockdown and they're not allowed back in their homes for the next 97 hours because that's how long he takes his family hostage for four days. So he calls the police immediately. He takes them hostage. He says, have Tracy here in 25 minutes or I'm going to kill them. And on the phone, the 911 operator can hear the little boy saying, please don't kill me, Joby. Please don't kill me. So he knows him. Yeah. The family knows him. 
So obviously the police are not going to bring Tracy over because that's just going to lead to more bloodshed. I'm sure Tracy probably would have gone over there. I'm sure she would have, but they don't let her have any kind. She has no communication with the outside world. She has no TV. She has no phone. They bring in, they bring in uh, the, the they, Samuel Jackson. They bring in a hostage negotiator. Yeah. As he's on the phone with the hostage negotiator, he demands that they put Tracy on the phone. But even that they don't allow her to do because after Tracy tells them her story they anticipate that he's asking for tracy so that he can murder her mother on the phone so she can listen to it oh yeah that's how crazy like this dude is so to be fair like the reason that i find this story to be so great is that it's littered with badasses like it's littered with people like amy and jason it's littered with people please tell me gary is just gonna come in and save the day i wish because gary i mean but Ma- major littered, dad please come in it's littered with people like gary like like stacy's parents so on the evening of march 21st they've been held hostage for four days so, the, so during these four days, um, Joby's like talking with people and asking for stuff and they're just being like, nah, 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 like we're not going to do yeah, this. Yeah, but he's like, also like torturing the family. He's also like holding them up against walls and shooting his gun right next to their heads so that they think that they're going to die. Like, but, but how, how did people like, so, I mean, I, there's no way we can get in. Like, how would you know as like a negotiator that he's not, he's not legit? Like he's already killed three people. Like, how would you like, like. Yeah. Well, so people, so what they had tried, and I think that it had a lot to do with the way that the block was situated. I mean, it it was a Baltimore block, so there were homes on both sides of their house, and there was a house behind them. And so they had tried to send people in, and he would start shooting his gun in the front yard. So when you say Baltimore, are you talking like Baltimore City, like Baltimore County? No, 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 like like Baltimore County. It was like in the suburbs. Um. So they don't bring Tracy over, but on Tuesday, March 21st, basically Lynn and Andy, the mother and father, realize like the in, cops in the are hostage not, situation. Yeah, the cops are not helping us. So this is like a crazy move. Lynn makes iced tea and they spike it with Xanax. Oh, yes. Yes, amazing, amazing. So move. Lynn is playing like a housekeeper this whole time that she's a hostage, and she decides, Andy, give me your Xanax. We're gonna put it in this iced tea, and they feed it to Joby. Only Joby, or like, or other people like? I think they like probably pretend to drink it, but he's the only one who actually drinks it. Actually, I think the little boy drinks it too because he passes out. Right. So Palchinsky drinks it. The little boy might drink it. They both pass out. Great idea, by the way. And Andy and Lynn run out of the house. They leave the little boy, which later... So later on, people will really question this, but I honestly... I can I can identify. No, that. you take the kid with you. I'm sorry. Like you don't leave that so house without I your kid. I saw a picture of the kid, and he's like a very big 12 year old. He's not a 12 year old that I could imagine carrying out on my own, and. They, their, their story was... a very big 12-year-old? Like six feet tall? No, I would say like probably like five feet tall, but... What? But like, but like a, a little bit heavy. So like he's, he's kind of the size of a grown man. 
Anyway, what? That, He's five feet tall and the size of a grown man. <laughs> that is not the point. Okay. I'm not here to body shame anyone. I'm not trying to body shame anybody. I'm just saying as a parent in a hostage situation, like even if I get shot running out, I'm taking my kid with me. I agree with you, but I have no idea what it's like when you've been sleep deprived for four days and think that like you're going to die. And then you can see the cops outside your window. And for whatever reason, they're not coming in. And so they run out. They basically tell the police, like, he's passed out. You need to go in now. You need to bring my son back. And to the credit of the oh, police. Oh, so both of them are passed out. Yeah. Uh, so to the credit of the police, the adults escape, but they come in immediately. They find Palchinsky. They drag the boy out. And <sighs> this is kind of fucked up. News. The news cameras are running. At this point, the entire block is shut down, and they shoot and kill Palchinsky. In the autopsy later, it's found that he was shot 27 times. Wait a minute. The guy's passed out? Yeah. I mean, I don't know enough about Xanax to say, like, you could be half asleep or sedated, and you could... I mean, the guy's an automatic weapon. So, if you know, if, if he even tries for it, yeah. I, yeah, if I'm a cop going in there, I'm... You you even move to pick up your gun. Yeah, you're done. Like so that's the argument you that's made three later. Already, yeah, I'm 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 into that. So that's the argument that's made later because 27 times could kind of be categorized as overkill. But is it? It's not 27 times from one gun. It's probably 27 times from like four guns, right? So you can't you can't. So, so, so what? I guess, but at the same time, like we're talking about the certainty. Six bullets. Of, six bullets from four guns. But we're talking about the certainty of making sure that this kid who's passed out next to him does not get hurt. Yeah. Because, like, my assumption is they're all being held in the same room. Yeah, that's probably right. Some, like, probably big family den room or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, you want to make sure the kid isn't hurt. They shoot him 27 times. He's shot dead. This puts an end to his killing spree. This puts an end to his life. And I cannot for the life of me understand, but it it seems like his mom, who's been this enabler this whole time, never really makes peace with the fact that her son was a psychopath. Like, she just kind of continues living her life thinking that her son was... Wait, so, so she's still around? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she she doesn't talk to the press or to the police, but she never comes out and says, like, you're right. He was fucked up. Right, but, like, yeah, I, yeah, okay, well, that, that would be, I mean, I don't know. It would be hard to do. Like, I'm not saying like, you would need to come out and make an official statement, but you could you could come to maybe terms with the fact that your son, you know, did some really terrible things and was not a great person. But the fact that you, you don't have to come out on, like, you know, Baltimore four news and you know, you know, tell explain that to people. I could see that. I guess when people reached I I don't know. She just she seemed like an enabler from like an enabler from beginning to end and it just I I have such a hard time reconciling people who seem like they have genuinely like they mean well because that's something else that they talk about in a lot of these articles. Hi. Hi, Thomas. I don't know if you heard him yelling. Well, that, that, that's Rebecca's cat, who, honestly, the listeners get to deal with cats instead of dogs, so I'm sure they didn't hear Rusty jingling around, biting on his bone for the past hour. Um, I just... 
I mean, it, it like I've heard you guys talk about this in like in previous episodes, like. You know, I, I understand what happened to Joby, you know, like, I, you know, as a, as a cop or as somebody who's going in after, you know, 96 hours and if this guy, okay, yeah, me, I, I can assume like the way they knew he was on a Xanax is these, this couple like kind of storming out being like, yeah, we drugged him and like, it's really fast and like frantic and stuff. And you run in and you're afraid for this other kid's life, but you also know that this guy has killed three other people. He's got an automatic weapon. Like if he in any sort of state you know, goes for a gun or, you know, makes motions to get up and do stuff. Yeah. You're going to take him down. Like I, t- I totally get that. Um, uh, but, uh, it, it does kind of, you got like what I was saying about you guys talking about this, like it, it does kind of, you kind of want this guy to have his day in court, you know, like you want. For me, that's the toughest part is that so many times with these murderers, all that I can think is like, Oh, I just want you to, I just want to be able to hear like not from your side of the story, but I want the victims to be able to confront you and say like, you did this to me and you did this to my family and how dare you? And even if they're psychopaths or sociopaths who have like no remorse about it, I feel like the the catharsis of a victim saying like, this happened to me, it has to be acknowledged, is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think that's why like, I feel compelled to spend so much time talking about the victims and like who they are and like how much I feel for them because I feel like a lot of times the serial killers are sensationalized. Like when you talk about like Ted Bundy or Ed Gein or what have you, you're talking about like these dudes who do horrible things and I don't like I don't think that they even deserve that. No, right, yeah. I mean I- I, I think they deserve their day in court, like you said, for for the victims, for the people who are left behind. I don't think they... De- I actually don't think that they probably hear a lot of what people, the victims, have to say. I think they probably have some... Like, this guy probably would have some weird rationalization for why he did what he did, and it made sense. So like, whether or not it'd be insane or, you know, some sane person, you know somehow rationalizing what they did. Uh, but I think I think the victims in society gain so much from from that experience. Even as painful as it might be, it's it's almost like um you know, you have those sort of symbolic events in life, like whether it's graduation or um getting married, generally happy events, but even in the, you know, funerals, right? Like wakes or um, ceremonies of, of, of death. Like, I think they, they demarcate a passing of time and a, a specific sort of way for us to express feelings and emotions. And I, I think the, the same holds true with trials and, and, and that. Well, it's like this dude, Dylan Roof, right? Who is like on trial right now? Oh, in South Carolina, yeah. Refuses to acknowledge that he did anything wrong. He's representing himself. He is telling the jury that like I didn't do anything wrong. I don't regret it. There's nothing wrong with me mentally. I'm not sick. I know what I did, and I don't think it was wrong. And all I can think the entire time is like the vic. Like you have a voice. The victims don't have a voice. The only the victims' family do, and like. That's why it's so important to have these proceedings is like you can say whatever you want because you're a disgusting pile of human garbage and you're still alive. And you you believe what you think to be righteous or correct. 
right? In this guy's case, the Dylan Roof case, right? But without any kind of like judicial system, without any kind of trial, the victims don't have a voice. Yeah, because, yeah. It's been taken from them. Yeah, exactly. Like you're a perp- like you're a predator. You're a perpetrator. You deserve to be in jail. Like these people don't have any other recourse other than the story that's told in court for them, or the story that often gets told in the media. And you hope that that's the right story, but it it isn't always. It's people have their day in courts for the victims. They don't have them for the perpetrators. Yeah, I think for in in crimes where it's sort of more clear cut, that's that's right. You know, then you sort of get into those crimes where things become a little more hazy and is this person really guilty or are they not? And well, yeah, you go back to like our first episode where like David Vasquez, this poor guy who doesn't have an IQ above 70 is, yeah, exactly. is in jail yeah. for this crime that he didn't commit and you have to think to yourself like is it is it worth it? Is it worth it to punish someone who didn't do something wrong for a crime they didn't commit in or like in the name of the victims? And I think I don't I know this is weird, but I think that that's why we tell these kind of stories. Right. That's why we tell the stories of like these true crime murders. Like it's not because like we're a bunch of gross dicks getting off on it. Like it's because human beings need to tell these stories like we need to understand the different like shades of gray where one thing is acceptable and one thing is not. <laughs> Thomas, my cat just knocked that over. Sorry guys, we, we just had like a cat emergency happen. Yeah. Oh, he's just a weird a weird cat. To be fair though, Rusty and Billy would have knocked that over like Fair enough. Thomas in knocking that over also scared the bejesus out of himself. So, yeah, he won't be back for a while. So anyway, um, I I, I hope that the listeners enjoyed this. I I find the story to be completely fascinating. Becca, you have any um, plugs? Plugs? Uh, No, no plugs. Uh, Keep listening. Uh, I hope I hope to be invited back sometime soon. Uh, yeah, but Becca has like her own podcast launching in the mix. Maybe, maybe Natalie and I are talking about launching a a, a podcast, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, She's getting like super nervous I right am, now. I am. Like, oh my god, I don't even know what to talk about. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, stay in the mix. I'm sure we'll be cross promoting and doing things like that. But yeah, definitely. Um, again, if you spotted any inaccuracies, I do my best to do my research on this, but. As always, I'm human. I could be wrong. Um, you can email us at detectivesocietypod at gmail.com. Tweet at us at the detective pod um, or like us on Facebook. You can message me. As always, uh, my name is Natalie Levy. And I'm Rebecca Johnson. And this has been Detective Society. Bye.